Joining us right now is our Democrat of the day. We head to Minneapolis itself, 59B. Uh, Representative Esther Agbaje is kind enough to join us. She is uh, representing 59B, which is the downtown area and the north side. She's kind enough today to talk about her re-election campaign. Representative, thank you very much. I appreciate the time. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. Congratulations. You, of course, uh, won in 2020. And you've you've gotten two years uh, in a a fairly competent House with the Democrats in charge, dealing with a fairly incompetent Senate Senate run by the Republicans. Uh, Your thoughts just on your first two years there in St. Paul? I always tell people it is a fascinating and terrifying place all at the same time. Ah. Um, (laughs) But no, we, you know, I think the House did a really good job of pushing forward a number of bills and investments into our communities, um, especially those having to deal with our young people and having to deal with housing and health health issues, education. Um, all of those things I think were great to be behind, as well as some civil rights issues. And we were able to pass a couple of bills, even with our Senate colleagues. And um, so that's why you've been able to see some, you know, COVID investments that we had last year, as well as this year moving into more mental health resources. Um, as well as doing some some work for um, our foster care system. So, yeah, it's been it's been some ups and downs in, in these past couple of years. You uh, you are a big advocate for housing. Um, you well, actually, let me ask first of all, fifty nine B. Did it change much with the redistricting? It changed a little. So mm-hmm. we, you know, lost. I shouldn't say lost, but, you know, some of our neighborhoods that were further south into downtown, neighborhoods like Bryn Mawr and Elliott Park, uh, they were redistricted out. But we did uh, bring in areas of St. Anthony, Maine, which is kind of where the Stone Arch Bridge is. And then we also got a little bit more of our neighbors on the north side. So I think the shape of the district is still relatively the same, but we have a lot of density in the area. So we, we definitely have, you know, good numbers of people in all of the apartment and condo buildings and that we have across the district. This, uh, I want to get to housing then. That's why I want to talk about the district, because you're in a fairly condensed area, a high density area. Um, we need housing. I mean, we need housing in every community, including in the most rural of rural you know, cities in the state. It is something that is not really being addressed. And we it seems like the only two things that get built nowadays are massive apartment complexes, which pretty much are priced out of a lot of people's you know, pocketbook anyway, or McMansions, these huge houses. Those are the only two options. Talk about the fight to get affordable housing built, not only in your district, but across the city and across the state. I think you hit, you hit it right on the head. Affordable housing is a crucial need across the state. And here in my district in particular, we see that with a lot of the apartment buildings going up, the luxury condos going up, just as you said, people are getting priced out. And we need to make sure that we are actually focusing on um, spending money on rehabilitating some of our older housing stock to make sure that that, those are habitable places for people to live. And hopefully that they're also at a lower price point and that they're meeting people's budget needs. Because we want to make sure that our families have safe places to stay. Because the thing about affordable housing is really not, it's more than just a commodity. It's more than just a return on investment if you're a small-time landlord. But it really is a place where people can go and call home. It's a place where they have rest, refuge, where they can take care of themselves. 
when kids know that they're not going from place to place, they can do better in school. Parents also do better at their jobs when they know where they're going to be every day. And so that's why it's really important that we focus on housing. And in other parts of the state, we know that there are lots of areas that new businesses are coming there. They need workers to live close by. And we need to make sure that we have affordable housing in other parts of the state so that way people don't feel like they can't get those jobs because there's nowhere to live around there. Um, So those are some of the things that we're facing kind of as a statewide issue. I would say, particularly in my district, I do focus a lot on landlord-tenant issues because we have a a significant portion of renters, if not maybe even majority renters in my district. And we want to make sure that renters are living in safe and stable places, that their landlords are being held accountable if they're not keeping up with repairs like they should, Mm -hmm. and then also working closely with our city and county counterparts to make sure that there's kind of a a level playing field for people that if they have, you know, reports of complaints or something like that, that, that there's someone there on the other side to answer it. The this has always been a fight when we talk about landlords and uh, and renters is that you always for for there's a lot of great landlords there's a lot of great owners of apartment buildings they do a wonderful job and it's very it's it's appreciated for sure but you always do end up having you know the, the you know these the, the, some of these landlords who who are do not have their renters best interest in heart and in some cases start to get to the point of jeopardizing the people that are in their building. You know, talk about that a little bit more because it's it's clear that we're always going to have some level of this. How do you make sure that you get the accountability without basically putting harnesses on all of them, especially the ones that are, are not doing the bad job, that are doing the good job? You know, I think it all goes down to communication. The landlords who are doing a good job, they don't have to worry about, you know, what is coming in to make sure that their tenants also have access to the same judicial system that they do. Because if you have that communication in place, you probably can work out a lot of these issues without ever having to go to court. But a lot of the bills that we've put up this year and in previous years before I was even in the legislature is really about ensuring that uh, renters especially can access the same judicial system, can access the court system, can make sure that their voices are heard when something goes wrong. And then for those landlords who aren't doing what they're supposed to do to know that you know, there are enforcers around who will make sure that you are actually providing a safe place to live for people. So some of the bills that we've put forward and have put forward multiple times are things about making sure that there's adequate notice before an eviction happens, because sometimes if you have adequate notice and about the average across countries, usually 14 days, even the city of Minneapolis now actually has a 14 day pre-eviction notice, which is great. That gives the renter time to find resources because it's usually going to be a non-payment of rent issue and it helps them find emergency assistance resources. It helps them find maybe an attorney if they need one. Um, And then so that way, maybe you can resolve those issues before you even get to the court. Another thing that that we've continued to push multiple times is having um, evictions be expunged from people's records because what happens now in the state of Minnesota is once that landlord files, there's been no court case, there's been no appearance before a judge, but it's just been filed, just an allegation, that follows that person, that renter's record for a very long time, which then makes it much more difficult for them to secure housing in the future. So we want to make sure that if you go to your court case and it gets dismissed or you win or you get a settlement, that that falls off immediately. And then finally, one of the things that really helped a lot, especially during the height of the pandemic, is making sure that if you are in line for assistance, and that's emergency assistance, maybe you're getting funding from a nonprofit or, you know, the city or the state or the county has 
funds available to help renters stabilize and be in their homes, that you can't be evicted while you're waiting for that money to come in. And we saw that worked really well for about 18 months um, during the height of the pandemic. And we want to make sure that we're bringing something like that back because it's about making sure people can stay home, but also making sure that our landlords are getting paid, um, especially those who are doing a good job. Representative Esther Agbaje is joining us. 59B is the district. Let's go back to housing a little bit here because there is, it's kind of the ugly truth of it. When you, and I was on a planning and I was on, uh, on my city's planning and zoning committee for a while. And one of the things that we always addressed was wanting to try to make sure we had affordable housing being built, you know, not just, you know, you know, upper class housing or, you know, housing that was pricing out a lot of people, a lot of the renters. When you say I'm going to build low income housing on this block, on this site, the next thing you generally hear is a lot of the people that live around that site saying, wait a second here. What do you mean low income housing? Why aren't you building, you know, uh, you know, other housing here that can actually increase the area's value? Why are we doing this? Talk a little bit about that because they're to a point, And this has been something that's been talked about a lot. Part of the problem for the city with affordable housing is that it's, you know, it's kind of fine if it's over on the other side of town, but if it's in your neighborhood, there's a tendency of people in the city to not be supportive of it. No, I think you bring up a great uh, question that comes up all the time when we start talking about public housing, low-income housing. I, you know, I think those monikers too, we have to remember that everyone deserves a safe, clean, dignified place to live whether, you know, that's an efficiency or a one-bedroom or a single-family house as a person so desires. I think when we talk about this, we should really be thinking about how are we caring for our neighbors and how are we caring for those around us and providing those amenities. And those amenities in the long term will, will provide value to a community. I think, you know, what I find a lot, particularly in my district um, and throughout the city of Minneapolis, is there are a lot of people who do want to become homeowners. They see that as a path towards wealth, and I think that is a path to get towards wealth building. And I think we need to be looking at how can we build homes that people can actually afford to buy. Um, And whether that is a single family home or duplex or some other type of shared um, housing situation, I think we need to look more at those. When we're also looking at apartment complexes, I think mixed income housing is really good. Because part of that is really making sure that we're getting people at all at all levels that are mixing and interacting with each other can start to build that social networking with each other as they get to know their neighbors. What we don't want to do is we don't want to uh, concentrate areas of poverty because we know over history, watching how things have happened throughout the country, that that just tends to exacerbate uh, some of the issues that we see and some, some of the problems that can come with it. But if we start mixing things around, we start, you know, having, you know, more high-income high, high income people live with lower-income people, maybe that builds new opportunities. Um, if we have mixed-use type of housing as well, where maybe you have some businesses on the bottom floor, on the first floor, ground floor, and then you have units up above, there's so many things that we can do, especially in our district where we do have a lot of density. People do want more walkable neighborhoods. They do want more amenities. And I think there's ways that we can get creative um, in making sure that we can create healthy 
habitable, dignified housing for people who want it. Well, and then this goes hand in hand with another issue you talk about, and that's public transit. Um, I know that we are in this new age. We're trying to figure out how much of the workforce is going back into the downtowns, going back in. I mean, a lot of people are now, at least on a part-time basis, working from home every week. So there is a change that's going on. We're still trying to figure this out. But the reality is, is we still have businesses downtown that need workers. And reality mm-hmm. is downtown is not affordable for most workers. That They're having to come on in. We need to have reliable public transit that can get the working class in because I, I still even also agree, even if you do have a car, it's not cost effective to be able to park it anywhere downtown. So we have to have this option on the table. Talk a little bit about that because I know that this is something where I think Republicans feel as if with the change that's happened after the pandemic – that, that public transit is something that can be more on the chopping block for them than it has been in the past. Yeah, public transit is crucial. I mean, you know, as someone who has lived in downtown for a number of years, that is my main way of getting around, if not walking. So mm-hmm. I, and, it, and it's true because I've talked to so many people who, you're right, they work downtown, but they live in the suburbs, and it's hard to get here sometimes from our, even just our first ring suburbs. So I would really much want to see greater investment in bus rapid transit, making sure that, you know, we have dedicated bus lanes so that way the bus can actually move faster and move on time. Because what we find is that when people see that there's high frequency for public transportation, it's highly dependable, they tend to use it more often because, like you said, no one really wants to drive a car around and then figure out a parking space and pay money for that. Like, it's a lot of a hassle. But if you can just jump on a bus or jump on a train and get to where you need to go and maybe walk a couple blocks, I think so many people would much prefer that. So I'm hoping that, you know, when we go back in the session in January, that we will look really closely, especially with a lot of the federal funding coming for infrastructure, that we're looking closely at how we're building out our public transportation line in the metro area for sure, but also even in some of our other city centers around the state. I've talked to friends of mine who live in central Minnesota, and they would really appreciate having a reliable and dependable bus system up there to help them get around, help them get their kids from different play dates or to recreation centers, like all of that. It's it's very useful. I still, for the life of me, do not know why we don't expand Metro Mobility into Outstate and offer it for especially the seniors who live on their farm home. They, they need to go into town to go grocery shopping or go to church or something like this. Having an option to where you could have a, you know, a, a, a flexible, you know, transportation system that can get people around – I, I think it would make life, especially in outstate Minnesota, a much better promise. But once again, when you start talking about you know, public transportation like this, if you say it, public transportation, a lot of Republicans shut down. But if you say, hey, we want to make sure that the people who live out in these farm areas where there still is some houses available, they can still get into town without, you know, without necessarily having to, to drive every time themselves. And I think that that is that's something that has to be addressed, hopefully, in the next few sessions here over in St. Paul. I hope so, too. Well, we'll we'll be working on it. I know we'll. Uh, One last quick thing, if I can ask, Representative, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the, you know, you know, public schools and making sure that there's the, the achievement gap is closed. A study came on out that said that basically Minnesota schools are 20% behind on budget because so many years because of conflict, the budgets don't get any increase. It's set at the same rate. Henceforth, inflation's not factored in. Henceforth, 
we're actually putting less money in per student than we were, 20% less. That's part of the problem as well as also, I think, and it, this is a good thing, I think we're finally dealing with this Archie Comics idea of education where it's you know very European, white-centric, and it's, it just can't be that way. And, and and expect to have you know you know the results that we want to get. So talk a little bit about that. How in your mind is the best way we can address the achievement gap? I think we really have to look at each of our kids in public schools as our kids. That's where it, that's where it starts. And so every kid deserves a stellar world class education, and we can provide that in Minnesota through our public education system. And we have the funding to do it. We have the resources to do it. But you're right, we just haven't quite pegged those numbers yet to inflation. We also are still leaving some of our school districts behind. I know the Minneapolis School District talks a lot about fully funding our special education and fully funding our English language learner programs. And those are are necessities that people need in order to make sure that our kids are doing well in school. And so I really think that if we can kind of switch our mindset a little bit, that education is a right and education is something that everyone deserves and that we need to make sure that our kids have the tools to go out and be successful in the world, wherever it is they want to go. I think if we look at our public education system that way, I hope that that will help bridge some of the hurdles about how much it costs. But in order to have a a world-class education system, you do have to put in the money to it and you have to make sure the money is going to the right places, is being spent appropriately, and is going to help the schools that have been left behind and and really need those resources. 59B is the district. The representative is Esther Agbaje, is uh, kind enough to join us here. Uh, Representative, if people would like to find out more about your campaign and your issues and where you stand on everything, help you out perchance on your election here, what's the website they should go to? They should go to www.estheragbaje.com. I'll spell it out, E-S. E-H-E-R-A-G-B-A-J-E. Otherwise, you can find me on social media. All my handles are at go, the number four, Esther. All right. Uh, I'll link to everything on social media a little bit later on, too, so you can find it via the station uh, social media pages as well. Representative Esther Agbaje. Uh, Representative, thank you very much. I appreciate the time. A great conversation today. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. You guys have a good rest of the day.